if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Peter in the New Testament. It is page 859 in the Church Bibles. It's chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. Our concern is verses 8 through 11, but we'll just read what we read last week and then kind of, because it all flows together so well. All right, 1 Peter, chapter 5, the second sentence of verse 5. All of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And remember, we said there's no period in the Greek. It's just one continuous thought. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's pray together this morning. Father, as we open your word, it is your voice alone which we need and what we seek We just recognize that our times are filled with all kinds of voices, including our own, which suggest all kinds of things. And because of this, we thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves, nor to some kind of subjective thoughts built on just simply impression or feeling. Rather, in the Bible, there is one clear voice by which you speak through the pen of men as they were carried by your spirit. Therefore, please take pity on me as the one preaching and take pity on those before me as those who have been called to listen to your voice. And by your grace, enable us to believe and apply and obey and rely on and enjoy and proclaim your truth. And that there's nothing to fear. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. Well, last time in our studies of 1 Peter, we noted in the verses that we learned, beginning in verse 5b there in chapter 5, they were not written in a vacuum. Therefore, they cannot be treated or preached in a vacuum. And it goes without saying then that what was true last week is equally true of the verses before us this week. In other words, these verses do not stand alone, but they're given in a context. In fact, verses 5 through 11 grammatically and in the Greek, they're all tied together. And we have to keep that before us if we're going to be able to share the writer's passion to know, please, and honor God as he is, as God, which is the intent of the Holy Spirit. And so we learn the context of Peter's letter was one of suffering as a Christian for the sake of the gospel. It's very important. Suffering as a Christian for the sake of the gospel. If you like, gospel-driven obedience, which invites suffering. This is what the 19th century uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon would call the inevitability of the gospel. That wherever the gospel is advanced, opposition will inevitably follow. Therefore, as we said last time, Peter is essentially telling these scattered uh, believers in, in northern Asia, this is the gospel. And he says, 
I'm going to pepper this epistle with gospel all through it. And this is what gospel living looks like in your context. And that's why we began last week. We said that the anxiety that was addressed here in verse 7 is not a diagnosed medical condition common to some. So you never hear me say, sister, you don't need those medicines. That would be very, very silly. But anxiety here is the normal cares or worries common to all Christians and specifically as a result of Peter's readers' gospel-driven obedience. They're in this pickle because of the gospel, because of their devotion to Jesus. Now, if you have anxieties or cares like I do because of life's normal challenges and, and, and changes, then Christians, by all means, chapter 5, verse 7, you hurl them. Remember last week? You cast them, hurl them at God because he cares for you. You are his personal concern. However, specifically here, these cares in this context are not a medical condition, nor is it a quality of life issue. These are losing your life issues for the sake of the gospel and living with the fallout of it. These are authentic gospel living implications having to do with the gospel being advanced and relied on by those who Peter writes to who are professing faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, what we learn, verses 5 to 7, is Peter lays down this wonderful principle. The presence of humility is directly related to the absence of anxiety. Okay? The presence of humility is directly related to the absence of anxiety, or the absence of humility is directly related to the presence of anxiety. So if you're like Peter saying, don't worry, just be humble. Don't let anxiety do what that word means. Separate your mind from God's truth, given from God's word. That's the intent of the word. It means separated mind. Humble yourself. Do not let your mind be larger than God's mind. Don't let your thinking on things adjudicate or make a judgment of God's truth. Didn't that happen to Peter? Remember, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, look, stop. Excuse me. Peter said to Jesus, stop saying you're going to die on a cross. Stop saying that. And Jesus, stop saying that I'm going to abandon you. Stop saying that. No, Peter, you stop it. You stop it. My word is over your thought, Peter, about you. And so clearly, Peter is telling us Christianity is not a mindless religion. It's not a mindless religion. That is the antithesis of everything that God has designed for his church. God never intended for his people... uh, would somehow connect up with him or worship him on instinct or vibe or impression or what we think or feel like is right in our own eyes. God wants our minds to be based on his truth so that our relationship can be based on his truth and therefore we enjoy a very clear and a very precise understanding of the God that we serve in Christ's name. So important. He's very, very clear. It's our sin that messes everything up. He's very, very clear. He's very, very good. And therefore, all the imperatives that that Peter writes through these, all the commands which are given, they're not random. They're very, very purposeful. Purposeful to meet the specific needs to execute, if you would, specific gospel truth in that specific context, in order that you and I, who are reading this letter some 2,000 years later, can make similar applications. 
as we come upon similar situations in order with the help of God's grace, we can rely on the gospel, we can enjoy its truth and do life as Jesus would have us. So then Peter moves his readers then from, if you see that in verse 6, God in his mighty hand to the devil, our enemy. And so that's our first point. We have an enemy, the devil. D.E. Host was the director of the Chinese Inland Mission Organization. He took over after Hudson Taylor had died. And he said, in this context of sending missionaries, this is what he said. I will never appoint men or women to the mission field unless he or she has learned to wrestle with the evil one. Because if they have not learned to wrestle with the evil one, they will almost inevitably wrestle with one another. He goes on, and when you find this wrestling happening within the family of God, it is almost always on account of the fact that those in the family of God have failed to understand who the real enemy is. And so Peter is alerting his readers to the fact that they have an enemy. Verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil. Now, the fact that we have an enemy should actually be an encouragement to us. Because it would serve to remind at least those readers that they had been radically transformed by the gospel. That the fundamentals of their life radically changed. They were called out of darkness. That's what Peter wrote in chapter 2 verse 9. And into God's marvelous light. Meaning their previous state was one of darkness and hostility towards God. In other words, every person, every person in their pre-converted state is an enemy of God. In fact, Paul, Peter's colleague, that's exactly what he writes. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So what Peter is making clear is the same grace which turns God's enemies into God's friends antagonizes the Christian to the evil one. So that we who are made a friend of God become an enemy of the devil. Because you cannot be a friend of God without having an enemy in the devil. And loved ones, please listen. That is all the difference between a religious person who sort of like moves things around in their life and is, you know, simply into self-improvement because he or she doesn't like how they feel about themselves. So they throw a little religion in there to kind of buttress things up. All the difference in the world between that and a person has been radically changed by the power of Jesus Christ. And if we try and win people to just biblical principles, but fail, them to win, but fail to win them to Christ, what we do is simply create religious people who lack the power to change, creating, at least in the West, neat and tidy people who still have God as their enemy and whose life, this side of heaven, is essentially untouched by the evil one. Sure, they'll have the normal stresses of life, but essentially, their life is untouched by the evil one. Religious people who, who simply resist Christians and resist Christ, but do not resist the devil. So you mean like the religious leaders that we learned about in Mark's gospel? Absolutely. How do you go year by year doing, doing God stuff, reading the Torah, worshiping, praying, working through the mechanics of their worship? How do you do that and yet look at Jesus and have... Have no affection for him at all. Because your enemy is God. So these pre-Christian realities are exactly that. They're pre-Christian realities. Now, in light of all this devil talk, 
on Mother's Day of all day. Sometimes you, you will hear people who are like, you know, really? This is the 21st century. And you say stuff like that. And typically, not always, but typically there are extremes here. So first of all, the devil is unbelievable. It's like, eh, come on, really? Or like he's unmanageable, right? He gives the impression that he's indestructible, that whatever he's going to do, he's going to do it. And we're like, ah. And also like, he's more reliable than God, which what I mean by that is like, more bad will come than good in our lives. And we're like, well, this is it. Or people say, listen, I really, really like Jesus, but I don't really like Peter, and I definitely don't like Paul, right? So no thank you to this epistle stuff. But you can't have Jesus without having Peter and Paul. And we would ask that person, have you ever considered this true story in John chapter 8 of Jesus? Jesus is talking to the Jewish people of his day, and they're like, Abraham is our father. And essentially like, back off, Jesus. And listen to what Jesus said. This is John 8, chapter 42, or chapter 8, excuse me, verses 42 through 44. If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. And it is impossible to miss the categorical nature of the instruction that Jesus is giving in that context. And if we're not careful, we'll come to believe or even just live like what our culture believes, namely that the devil is a made-up being or, you know, just a made-up being from a bygone era or people are basically good by nature. And if you just put them in a better context, give them some better resources, fix them up with that, they'll be fine. But there's no personification of evil in that that is driving all the evil in the world. However, Jesus makes it very, very plain. Outside of Christ, men and women help to fulfill the evil schemes of Satan. Say it again. Outside of Christ, men and women help to fulfill the evil schemes of Satan. Not all of them knowingly and willingly, but all of them inevitably. And Jesus of all people is saying to these religious Jewish people, your father is the devil. Your father is the father of lies. Your father is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-gospel. In his words and in his deeds. And so what were his children doing in Mark's gospel? Just like their father. Anti-God, anti-gospel, in word and in deed. Meaning, every voice which opposes, opposes Jesus' voice fulfills in some measure the agenda of he who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So, so don't forgive others. Keep hating your enemies. Be unmerciful to people. Slander them. Insult them. Mistrust God's people. Mistrust God's truth. Ignore God's truth. Or try to weaponize it so you can use it against people. When we do that, then we are promoting the evil one's agenda. We're promoting his schemes. And Peter, who had to listen to Jesus and had to learn so much from Jesus in the most difficult of ways, he writes with equal clarity, making it so plain, if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus Christ had redeemed you, then you'd still be in that situation. 
You'd still be an enemy of God. And if you like, a friend of the evil one. So as you think about this context that Peter is writing to, Peter is saying, listen, don't let life in any form overwhelm you. Ask God, ask God to help you bring your heart and your mind and your life under the jurisdiction of the scriptures. Because God wrote the Bible. God wrote the Bible. He knows how everything is to work and the evil one is opposed to that which God has ordained in every sphere and every scope of life. And yes, the issues of our day may be radically opposed to you. I mean, you might be in a context or station in life and it feels like the press is pressing you and the common wisdom of the day and the common philosophy of the world is just radically against you. However, Peter says, now listen, guys. Relax. Take it easy. Don't be bombastic. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Don't go into your community like a bunch of arrogant rascals. That won't do. And don't allow yourself, verse 7 there, don't be overwhelmed and overburdened by the challenges that are before you. Because of your gospel loyalty, simply you hurl all those cares at God. Cast them off. Cast them off to him as often as you need to so that you won't be overwhelmed and you won't be overburdened. But in due time, he will lift, he will lift you up. Actually, 1 Peter 1, seven in this chapter 5, um, verse 7, verse 6, that's the bookends of the book, to be honest with you. But I can't do that now. Sorry. <laughs> and then Peter says, don't be naive. Remember verse 8, you, you have an enemy, the devil, Therefore, verse 8a, control yourself. Be alert. Don't be intoxicated literally by wine, by beer, by life, by your own mind, by hate, by lust, by evil, by arrogance, by life riches, life pleasures, the deceitfulness of wealth. Don't be intoxicated by those things. Be vigilant. You have an enemy and your enemy is the devil. Antidekos is the Greek word that's used here. It means an opponent in a lawsuit. So think with me. If the Holy Spirit is our advocate before the Father, then the devil is the accuser of us before the Father. That's how he's described in the Bible. Revelation 12, Satan described as an accuser of the brethren or accuser of God's people who will not shut his filthy mouth. He will accuse us constantly before God day and night. Therefore, we have in the evil one one who is malicious, who is bitter, who is destructive, and who is vindictive in his accusations, and who is false in his charges. He is diabolos, diabolical. His name means slander. He slanders God to men. He slanders men to God. And his plan is for men to slander men and for women to slander women and for men to women and women to men, children to parents, parents to children, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, colleagues to colleagues, Christian to Christian. That's his plan. And he fills everything with hopelessness and a foul condemning stench. That's his identity. That's who he is. Okay, so what's his strategy? Verse 8b. He prowls around. It's a very interesting verb, isn't it? Prowl. Do you remember the opening chapter of Job? God asked Satan, where have you come from? And he replies, from roaming through the earth, going back and forth. You want to hear something funny? So I turned on my car this morning. I haven't turned it on all week. 
and the radio was on. It was on 95.5 or something like that. Guess what song was on? B-52's Rome, Where You Want To. I was like, ah, turn it off quick. <laughs> that was a joke. You're not getting it. It was real funny in the car. Let me tell you, I was laughing my head off. That's the evil one, roaming, prowling around. And the phrase here is, is kind of an a ugly restlessness in his search for victims. Restlessness is, is, in fact, very descriptive of evil. Constant edginess. Constant agitation. To, to be honest, as you think about it, Satan, this is just me, is probably filled with a whole lot of anxiety. He has no hope. He knows what's coming. However, he's not a dog to play with, is he? But he's a lion who, who roars. Why do lions do that? Well, they want to intimidate their prayer, prey. Excuse me. They want to keep all the rivals away so they might enjoy their prey. And the picture here is a picture of a complete, fierce, unrelentive, destructive activity. In fact, it, verse 8 is written, verse 8 and 9 is written in the present active indicative, and that means a right now, present action indicative of the subject, which is Satan. He is right now restless in his opposition against God and his people. Right now, he's looking for someone to devour. And think for a moment, and this just breaks the heart, how many young men and women, how many older men and women, how many middle-aged men and women, families, marriages, that Satan has devoured. And he's not very creative. He uses all the normal tricks under the cover of darkness, greed, pride, sex, fear, intoxication, hate, kind of perverted intellectualism, drug abuse, ignorance, pleasure, superstition, extra-biblical behavior, or here's a good one, no one understands you. No one understands you. Not even God. Or how about this one? Hey, come on, try it just once. No one's going to know. What is the source of all this? The answer is the devil. His identity is clear. His activity described. His destiny is certain. Right? So he is actually a defeated fo foe. So many of you know that I'm kind of afraid of dogs. <laughs> Not very brave, but that's just the way I am. That's the way I'm wired. <laughs> so here's a good story. Last summer, I was running through my neighborhood, and two terrible dogs, terrible dogs, because they were on a chain, and they broke loose. So the lady was a nice lady holding the chain, sees the dogs break loose, and they start chasing me. So she says to the dogs, stop, come here. But this is what they heard. Run fast and bite Joe. <laughs> because they chased me for, for about five minutes, and I wasn't screaming hallelujah. I was just saying, <laughs> I was like, hey, could you call them off, please? It's so funny, gosh. <laughs> Sorry, so pathetic sometimes. I am, I just am. She's laughing at me being chased by dogs. I'm like, the point is, that's not a picture of us and Satan. Satan cannot get you. He cannot hurt you. He cannot make you do something. Don't be afraid of him. Just be aware of him. Because at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ defeated the power of the evil one. So the evil one is at, is at bay, not because of you, 
but because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. He is all bark, but he has no bite. Therefore, we need not be paralyzed by his activity. There is no need for fear of him. We don't need to lie awake wondering if he's going to start shaking the house like you see on the movies. The Christians can't be possessed by him. Not in Christ. Not in Christ. And the outcome of the evil one is sure. He has been defeated by Jesus. He knows that. Still, he's playing out his moves knowing that he cannot stop the outcome. The, the best illustration you hear often is, is um, when you're playing chess and you're in checkmate and all you can do is keep moving your king around. But the game's going to end and he's going to lose. So we don't ignore him, nor do we become entirely preoccupied by him, but we do resist him. Is that what it says? Resist him. Which takes us to our second point. We have an enemy, the devil. We've been given a charge. Verse 8, be self-controlled, self-restraint. Right? Don't circle the wagons around your own life and your own agenda. Remember Peter wrote in 2, 16, chapter 2, verse 16, don't use your freedom to cover up evil. Live as God's slaves. Not a slave of yourself, but a slave of God. So Peter writes, be vigilant. The idea is like, don't fall asleep. Do you think Peter knew something about falling asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Peter, and moving a, from a, moving a stone's throw away, Jesus came back to find Peter asleep. And now Peter has learned his lesson. He's on about this. If your Bible's open, chapter 1, verse 13, don't be asleep. Prepare your mind for action. Be self-controlled and alert. Set your hope on your future certainties in Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7, be clear-minded. Be self-controlled. Chapter 5, verse 8, be self-controlled. Because Peter knew what it was not to be self-controlled in the worst of moments. Listen to what the Puritans say. The moment slothfulness begins, danger stands thick upon us. You remember when our parents would tell us that the devil finds work for, for idle hands? Well, it won't be gospel work that he finds for you, but it'll be some terrible work. So the Christian is involved in an irreconcilable and continual warfare. So you say, well, that doesn't sound much like a victorious life. Listen, the spoils of our victory at the end far exceed anything we lose in time. That's what Peter's saying. So stay alert to that. Be alert to that fact and make gospel realities what they are. Indestructible and true, and coming. Stay alert. Stay awake. Why? Well, verse 9, so we can mount a resistance movement. A resistance movement. You know, isn't it fascinating? I'm sure some of you know this because you're a bright group, but, but we're told in the Bible to run from a lot of things. Run from sexual immorality, from false doctrine, from idolatry, the desires of wealth, flee, the evil desires of youth. But nowhere in the Bible are we told to run from the devil. In fact, James says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's why C.S. Lewis, I mean, when you first read C.S. Lewis and you read the sentence, he calls the devil old smutty face. I remember reading that as a kid and it's like, what is that all about? Because that's what he is. He's a smutty face. He doesn't have any hold on us. So we don't run from him, but we do resist him, resist him. And here's the key, standing firm in the faith. 
Now the word resist means to stand up against, to take your stand against him. Verse 9, firm in the faith. Okay, so ask yourself, how do you deal with the devil? Do you do it kind of like mystically? Devil, I bind you. Or demons, I tie you up. Why in the world would we want to talk to the devil and his minions? I have nothing to say to him. Nothing. I resist him. Firm in the faith. Solid gospel stance. Here's my solid gospel stance. I am weak. And I am sinful. And I am so vulnerable. So who do I turn to? I turn to the captain of my salvation. So I would not recommend that you kind of like try to pump yourself up for Jesus when you're doing battle with the evil one. This is not some silly Christian equivalent of a cage match. (laughs) The real key is, it's theology and it's humility. That's what Peter's saying here. Firm in the faith, verse 6, humbling yourself under God's mighty hand. So the devil is a deceiver. He's a liar. We resist him with gospel truth. Gospel obedience. Now, just look at your Bible. Maybe you can see this. Maybe you can't. But I just put all in blue. You see all the blue that I put in my Bible? So here's the thing. Okay, so let's say you're in a marriage and your husband isn't a Christian. And it's really, really bad. What do you do? 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over with the word, without words, but by the behavior of their wives. That's what you do. Okay, look, I'm in a political situation which is really, really tough. 1 Peter 2. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted by, among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governor who is sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by you doing good in that framework, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. How about this one? I am suffering unjustly for Jesus. Okay, 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he, verse 23, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's Jesus. That's what you do. What about this one? I just, I'm mad at people. I'm mad at people in the church. All of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers and sisters. Be compassionate. Be humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. You see, that's gospel imperative, rooted in gospel truth. So the ways that we resist, they're all offensive. And it's more, if you would, like resting than it is work. You're resting in the finished work of Christ. And as you stand in that finished work of Christ, and you hear gospel truth, and you apply gospel truth, when the lion roars, we don't say, honey, where's my gun? (laughs) We say, sweetheart, will you get the Bible? We got some warring to do. I mean, I think about parents and like, I love you guys so much and I pray, I was going to say worry, but I shouldn't worry, but I pray for you a lot. And I'm like, okay, moms and dads, keep it under control. Keep it under control. When, when the hostility comes and the job stuff and the money stuff, keep it under control because God is your father. Christ is your savior. No worry. Your life is planned. He's got your back. You don't got you. He's got you. Remember C.S. Lewis, listen to this quote. When the devil comes to you to remind you of your sins, much of which is true, tell him to go, excuse me, this is C.S. Lewis, not Joe. Tell him to go to hell where he belongs. That's where he belongs. He is definitely headed there. 
tell him, there is no possibility that you will not go there. And I know that you would like to take as many people as you can, but I'm not one of them because I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Even though there's a part of me that fancies, fancies this idea, right? There's a part of me that just jumps into sin so easily. By the way, the devil hates truth, and that's a truth, so he hates to hear that. He would rather hear, like, I stand against this, and I'm so holy. and I'm No, he'd rather hear that. He would not like to hear that I struggle with sin all the time. And even though I give in to sin on far too many occasions, let me be honest, and I'm quoting Martin Murray McShane, 29 years old, he died, lived in previous generations. I know the seeds of every sin known to man dwell in my own evil heart. You see, that's truth. That's part of the Christian resistant movement. When he hears that, he hates that. I am helpless and I am hopeless without Christ. I am so weak and the sin of every man is in my heart. And what happens when you get weak? What does the Bible say? 2 Corinthians 12, then Christ's power rests on you. For when we're weak, then we're strong. So why would we ever look down on anyone who says, I did it again. And why would we ever say to anyone, I can't believe he did that? Because at least for me, I know that in any moment, I could do that. And to say that you couldn't is the moment when you stop resisting Satan. That's why Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he falls. And I want you to see how important that solid theology undergirding all our activity and learning then to make sure that when the day of evil comes, and it will, we say what Jesus said. Remember, it's so easy. It is written. It is written so that we can know what Jesus knew, then the devil left him. We're going to have to close. A wonderful little story. 18th century Britain. Sailors are telling the chaplain about how, how hard it is to, to resist evil. And they said to the chaplain, quoting now, if you were a real person <laughs> and you lived in the world, the real world like we do, then you would know we just can't help it. That there are certain tides and moods and pulls that are irresistible. So listen to what the chaplain said. One boat goes east. One boat goes west by the selfsame wind that blow. It's the set of the sails and not the gales that determine which way they should go. Loved ones, right up front, Peter wrote two, chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies crave spiritual milk. Crave the Bible all the days of your life like a baby. Peter, stand firm in the faith. Forgive quickly. Satan hates that. Boast about your weakness. He hates that. Boast about Christ. He hates that. Cast all your cares on God. He hates that. Be self-controlled, gentle, peaceable, humble. Don't slander people. He hates that. Keep no record of wrong. Back off on people if they just upset you. Remind yourself that you're going to die. And that's just fine in Christ. And when you do that, Satan hates that. And you resist them. And then when he says to you, did God really say? 
you say quick as a wink, yes, he did. Yes, he did. Now, quickly, will you notice that, yes, we have an enemy, the devil, but look how quickly, uh, too, that we've been given that charge. Look how quickly he says now, this is point three, we're not alone on two fronts. Number one, verse nine, because you know your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. That's what they were experiencing. So the experience that they had in Peter's context was not unique to them. And so what Peter says, when the battle rages, don't say, why me? That would not be appropriate. When suffering is happening, it is happening somewhere on this planet to other Christians. Somewhere. So just look at the world, Peter says, and realize that other Christians are in it. And that does a wonderful thing. It helps take all the focus off you and on to others. Because there is a, there's a wrong way to suffer. And here's part of it. Oh, poor me. Peter would say, hey, no, calm down. You're not the only one. And as you think about today, our brothers and sisters in Europe and Africa and China, the Philippines, they've come to know Jesus. Jewish people who have come to know Jesus, they're undergoing the same kind of thing. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean, but how do you think some of their Mother's Day is going to be? I mean, put, put yourself in their situation in sub-Saharan Africa, some third world country where, where Christianity is violently opposed. That's the first thing. Second thing, Peter says, verse 10, do you realize that you won't overcome any of this without the grace of God? And the grace of God is a sure thing. Verse 10, and the, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. You know what Peter's saying there? Without the grace of God, you would be lost, but the grace of God is a sure thing. A sure thing. He's going to restore you. He's going to make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Well, let's, let's end. On Friday night, I realized Sunday was Mother's Day. And I realized, as I was finished up this sermon, I was like, holy cow, this might not be a great Mother's Day sermon. Maybe, maybe not. So I have this book. It's called Her Story, and it's about women throughout history who have um, held the line for Jesus. It's going to read part of it. In the south of France, the Protestant movement was illegal. The Huguenots, they were the French Protestant movement, was in many ways a woman's movement for Christ. Marie Duan, in 1729, was in prison. The charge against her was she refused to renounce Protestant worship. At that time, she was only 15 years old. 16 years later, so she's 31, the year 1745, she was offered... If she renounced the Protestant movement, in other words, renounced the things that we were enjoying this morning and doing, if she renounced the gospel, she refused all such offers and remained captive for another 22 years. So now she's 53 years old. Throughout the years, resisting the temptation to despair, suicide, and betrayal. And today... You can go to the exact tower room where she was held. On the ground, you will find a stone 
circular opening and carved into the stone is one word. Resiste. Resist. Resist. One day, in the presence of such bravery, we will all bow to Christ. I can't wait. Let's pray. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the whole world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To God be the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'm going to hang around here if you have any questions. Have a wonderful day.